You are listening to Seize the Day with Natalie Miller-Snell. During these podcasts, we'll be exploring all of the different opportunities that we get to seize the day on a daily basis and what tools and what changes we can make in order to grab those goals. Are you ready to make change? Hello, 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 podcast lovers. How are you all? It's Thursday. I'm Natalie and you are listening to Seize the Day. Now, I am incredibly excited for today's show. I have got such an inspirational lady on. I'm bowled over. She is a leading diversity and inclusion expert, a dynamic keynote speaker, best-selling author, award-winning entrepreneur, and host of the Will to Change podcast, which uncovers true stories of diversity and inclusion. As the founder, president, and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, Jennifer's workplace strategies have been employed by some of the world's top Fortune 500 companies and nonprofits, including Walmart, Microsoft, Starbucks, Toyota Financial Services, T-Mobile, and many others to help employees bring their full selves to work and feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. Oh, just amazing. Please put your hands together for the incredible Jennifer Brown. Whoa. Oh, wow. Woo. Thank you, Molly. <laughs> Happy to be here. How are you? Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to this. It should be great. And it's now, so it's the morning for you. So literally good morning, 9am-ish. Yeah. Yeah. It's the start of the day, start of a very busy day, but I'm just happy to not be on a plane. (laughs) You know, that's a good day for me. (laughs) Brilliant. And for all of the listeners, where, where actually are you at the moment? Yeah. I'm based in New York city, right in Manhattan, where I've been for 22 years, believe it or not. And, uh, but I'm a Southern California native, so I'm sort of, um, I'm, I'm a bi-coastal person at heart. <laughs> love the sun and sunshine and relaxed vibe of West Coast, and I also love the, all the type anus that comes with New York City. <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. Now, that intro is quite spectacular, and I think your journey is... It's very admirable and it's very inspiring. So for all of the listeners, let's talk about that, because you had a dream. That sounds like I'm going to go into a musical. You had, a, <laughs> um, yeah, it, you, you had to abandon it and you came, uh, overcame that negative and turned it to a positive in such an incredible way. For all of the listeners who might not be familiar, what's your journey and your story? Yeah, well, I think, let me tell it quick, as quickly as I can. I was an activist in my 20s, so I've always, I've always sought like a professional role where I could be making a difference. So that was always really important to me. Uh, and then, but I was also a singer at the same time. So I said to myself in my 20s, I said, I've got to move to New York and try to make it, which I did. Lucky me. I got a master's in operatic vocal performance and I was sort of going full on towards that and then injured my voice, had to get a series of vocal surgeries. um, And I never really, my voice never really recovered. It's stamina, the stamina that would be needed for eight shows a week. And so I had to reinvent and I found my way, luckily, to the field of leadership development because a lot of performers, ex-performers and stage people are great with people, you know, and you don't lose that. I mean, you have a real gift with that. So I ended up being a trainer for a while, um, corporate trainer. I taught everything under the sun, like presentation skills and business writing and time management uh, and supervisory skills. It was really fun. And I realized I really loved being in front of a group, but I loved being in front of that group, teaching leadership and really facilitating the knowledge from a group as well. Like not just teaching, but really 
listening and pulling the knowledge out and connecting the dots and things. And so um, that was a, a real fit as a facilitator for me. And I got laid off for my last corporate HR job doing that. And I said to myself, you know, I think I want to be an independent. I think I want to influence the conversation from this sort of external point of view, which would give me a lot more freedom to uh, shape the conversation to basically have, a, have an opinion, honestly. I mean, you don't work for anybody. You can tell the truth in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's such a gift. And so I was started my company 13 years ago, Jennifer Brown Consulting. I built my team. We started in the leadership and team development space, but then we pivoted into DNI because I'm a member of the LGBTQ plus community, have been out for 25 years. And I, I realized there could be a, um, this beautiful synergy between organizational development, leader, the leadership conversations I wanted to have, and the sort of my identity that I could bring to this work. And then it sort of grew into the ability to influence the diversity and inclusion conversations in companies, which is effectively a leadership conversation. Um, and it's effectively an organizational change conversation, actually, because you're trying to awaken people to the need for attention and priority on diversity and inclusion and workplace issues and you know people feeling welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. And so um, we pivoted into diversity and inclusion. I became, over time, I became a specialist in it. Um, I, one would might say an expert, although I think all of us, even the, that are doing this full time, realize there's so much we don't know. I totally um, so, <laughs> learn every day, right? Every, every day, every day. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and so this, these days, 13 years in as an entrepreneur, I have a team of 25. Uh, we're all we're virtual. We're all over the country and the world. We get to work with Fortune 500, and I like to say I was meant to use my voice, just not as a singer. So that's pretty cool. Do you know, absolutely cool, fantastic, inspiring, admirable, the whole, the whole shebang. There's so many seize the day moments in that. It's absolutely quite incredible from the um, opera side of things to then even just talking about the, how the redundancy came in with a job and that sparked you to do something else. So it's yeah. very, it's taking that next, next step forward and it's seizing the opportunity and, and moving, which is absolutely incredible. So you founded... JBC back, mm -hmm. was it around 2005-ish? Yeah, ish. 2005, mm -hmm. okay. Right. How, what strategies did you employ to build your own confidence? Because back then, folk weren't necessarily as accepting. The world is changing, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. To build your own confidence to lead groups when you might have often have only been the only woman or definitely the LGBT side of things. How did you, how did you find the strength to move forward and mm. actually tackle that? Yeah. You know, I think I was always a brave kid. Um, I had a sort of strange, I was kind of precocious <laughs> and I, <laughs> I was the old, I was the oldest child, but I, I think I always wanted to be an adult woman, even when I was a small girl. Okay. Um, and I was, my mom was always like pushing me out on the stage. I think she secretly wanted me to be Miss America, honestly, not so secretly. <laughs> so, uh, so, so she, she just, I don't know, but it's funny. Like we're born into the families we're born into, I think for a reason. For a and reason, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And my parents pushed me really hard. They pushed me to perform in all domains. And um, I was put on that stage as a young child. Um, and I actually really loved it, believe it or not. I mean, I, I might have protested and, you know, done the usual rebellious child kind of stuff, but like secretly I was like, ooh, I like this a lot. And I was never afraid. I was, I was like, I craved performing. And I really craved being on the stage at that time as a musician, right? So I was in piano competitions and singing with orchestra and I just, I just rolled with it. Like it was just meant to be. So I think 
when I realized I could have a role like on platform, as we say in the training world, and people would listen to me. <laughs> and um, funny enough, they would listen to me, even though often I was the one with the least experience in the room. But the beauty of facilitation in the learning and development world is that you're given like a lesson plan, like a really great design. And um, you only need to really facilitate most of the knowledge from the room itself. And your role is to really uh, marshal that, gather it, it um, connect some yeah. dots, give it back, you know? So it's this different, you don't have to be the expert. And, but over time, inevitably from facilitating all those conversations, you become an expert because you, for me anyway, you, you sort of hear things over and over. You start to form a point of view. You start to steer things a certain way. You start to realize, like I certainly realized through facilitating hundreds of classrooms in corporate America, that so much was broken in the workforce and in the workplace around culture and engagement and feelings of belonging. And I didn't really have the language yet for diversity and inclusion, but I definitely, I definitely realized people were really unhappy. Um, and it was interrupting performance and fulfillment and the um, the connection to purpose and all those things. And I didn't, again, I didn't have the language for DNI. And it's certainly not just a diversity issue, but these days we understand that diversity is actually when the, when the lack thereof is a present or people don't feel included, it creates an engagement issue. It creates a leadership issue. So um, I think that, and that was true for me. And so I think part of my power came from my own personal story and the, the riddle I was trying to solve, which was that I was closeted in the corporate space for years. You know, I was closeted as a performer, not seeing anyone that looked like me on stage and say, or that I thought looked like shared my story, you know, cause we can hide so much, a lot of us and I can too. Um, yeah. And so I just, I was assuming like, there's just nobody that, that looks like me and where am I? Like, like, do I belong in the business world? Do I belong on stage? You know, what if I came out? Like, how would that impact how I was cast in roles? You know, everybody always wanted to make me the ingenue because, you know, that's yeah. <laughs> typecasting. And I'm, I'm very like feminine presenting. And they, you know, I was going to play the 18 year old, you know, younger sister until I was 50 years old. And that was sort of the writing on the wall. And that was not too interesting to me, actually. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of reasons that I probably needed to get out of performing. But um, yeah, so anyway, I had that confidence as a performer um, to get up in front of any group and make it work. Um, that I knew I had that sort of presence. And I had that confidence that comes from auditioning, you know, and saying, hearing no, like constantly. And then I also had this sort of personal lens of having felt like the other. Um, and then I, and then I was lucky enough to take part in these sort of early advocacy groups around the LGBTQ, the corporate conversation, meaning like the very early days of domestic partner benefits, the very early days of LGBTQ advertising. And I had a lot of friends who were leading that in their companies here in New York. And I just fell into this group that was like literally the most out person who was, you know, leading the first like marketing strategy for Merrill Lynch for, you know, LGBTQ clients, you know, and this was years ago. So I was, I was on the ground floor of that and I learned so much. And I thought to myself, like, how could I bring my story to bear on this and my leadership lens and my organizational change background to be a, a consultant? for more diverse and inclusive workplaces. And it sort of broadened out from LGBTQ to encompass then all aspects of diversity, which we do now. We literally, we like consult on all of them together and separately. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's just one, yeah, it was really cool. So now we're like, I, I think we're one of the leading firms on this stuff and um, I'm on my second book and we're sort of trying to chart a course for 
you know, for both employees to feel like welcome, valued, respected, and heard, but for companies to do the right thing, which is a huge passion of mine because that was me. You know, I was not, I, I left, I left corporate America. They, it lost me, you know, as a person who might have brought talents and energy and innovation to the company. But I just was like, you know what, this can't hold me. I, I can never thrive here. And it wasn't just LGBTQ. Honestly, it was so many other sort of issues that are broken, I think, with the way that work is structured. And obviously, as a woman, being in a masculine-dominated workplace, too, I think there was so many cracks in it. And, um, you know, I, I just, and I don't think that we can afford as companies to lose talent like me and others in sort of large numbers. But that continues to happen. So, you know, we need to change that because not everybody needs to be an entrepreneur and nobody, not everybody can be an entrepreneur. Like most yeah. of us need a paycheck. We need to be in a, in a part of an institution. So to me, it's unacceptable if these institutions aren't really taking these, these things seriously and doing something about it. Now, do you know what? Something I, th I believe I read in your book, actually, um, you talk about it being poignant that you want to encourage workplaces to be more diverse and inclusive, because as you said, it was your life. And you've experienced that and I've experienced that. And I'm sure many people mm. listening will have experienced it as well. You feel excluded. Mm -hmm. You don't feel that you're part of necessarily the company makeup or strategy in terms of moving forward or that you're valued in that sense and included. Right. So having, I think, and what I've written down here, those personal experiences make what you, what you do more valuable in that sense, because it's, there's integrity there, there's honesty, and there's real life experiences and anecdotes that can go along with it. So we'll definitely come on to your book as well, but I just want to ask you one other thing, because we touched on it before we started on the sure. podcast. I'm an advocate for self-care and looking after yourself and taking time to rest and repair. Being a diversity and inclusion leader, you know, making that path and being the pioneer, that's got to be exhausting. How do you, or yes. how do you ensure you make time for yourself in order to avoid the compassion fatigue that you probably advocate for others, but to yes. ensure that you can still be there at the front? <laughs> Thank you. Oh this is what we need to do. Right. Let's charge. Come on. Let's go. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, I bear in mind that I have so much, I have so much privilege based on the family I was born into, the opportunities I've had, the comfort and safety I've had in my life because of the way I look, you know, the way I identify, you know, I have had a very different experience than, you know, others, even within the LGBTQ community, because there's levels of privilege that we have. Um, and so I say, you know, I, I have a lot more, um, I think stamina, we all have a lot of stamina, first of all, to do this work. But, but I am not managing a lot of other stigmas and stereotypes that maybe other advocates in the community are. Um, so I'm coming from a place of having, perhaps I'm able to step in and maybe lead and not face so much difficulty as perhaps somebody else in the movement and in, in the advocate world does. And so for me, um, you know, I like to think like I, you can pass the baton to me and I will run with it and I will do everything I can to get in the room and challenge the conversations and speak truth to power. And, you know, and, and sort of, I have a job to do in this body that I was given. Um, and I did not earn <laughs> comes with responsibility and opportunity for me to lead things and step in, you know, when others are tremendously fatigued. And what this sounds like is, you know, we even have clients who say, you know, Jennifer, I've been saying this forever, but they're not, they're not hearing me. Can you come in and say the same things and you'll be heard? And that's not right. And that's not fair, but it is a reality. So I think that for me, the self-care, I mean, that energizes me because I feel, I feel important and I feel like what I can contribute is significant. Um, and that actually fills my cup. It doesn't drain me. 
it, it, it enables me to feel like I have a role to play in change, which is, which is gosh, like sort of the deepest sense of belonging that you can have because you care so much about this yeah. movement, you know, but I think that many people are trying to find their role in this movement and in this work. I mean, trust me, I get like 10 emails a day. Can you tell me how you got into diversity and inclusion? I want to quit my job and start doing what you do. Can I work with you for you? <laughs> like, I mean, con like, there's a lot of people who are waking up to the importance of this yeah. but are struggling, I think, based on their own demographics. Like, well, what do I fit? And can I do this work? Because there's a level of like, well, what do I need to know and how do I use my voice, particularly as a person that maybe looks like me or share some of my demographics of privilege. So uh, it's just really interesting. Um, my self-care personally is to have, you know, to be in community. Um, so I have to go out, I have to like sail away from the comfortable shores, you know, and sort of fight the battles. But like, when you think about like, where do you return to? Like, where's your home base? Where do you plug back in? Like, where do you feel like you're sustained? I think that that's, for me, the LGBTQ community, particularly uh, women, uh, that community is probably my my crew, you know, we, we sort of come back to that and say like, okay, let's like regroup. <laughs> let's, let's like, you know, sustain each other. And then, you know, you sort of scatter again, you do your thing, you know, and that's, um, that's hard. And, but if you can come back and be in a room where you feel super comfortable, like just relaxing, saying like how it really happens, talking about how you feel, having a place to put your anger and your frustration and have people just totally get it, um, on so many levels is, is how we, I think, have to make sure that we, we can fight another day. And so I would think about that. I also, I just, for me, community, being reminded of why I'm doing this and who I'm doing it for and with and alongside yeah. is where I kind of recenter. Yeah. Um, and then I can go out again and be in those rooms of all male, all, all white male executives who are like crossed crossed arms, like totally skeptical, looking at their watch, being like, you know, what, like who is this woman and why is she here to talk to us? Oh, to you, honestly, yeah. I want to come on to that actually. Two things you've just said there, which I think are fabulous and I do want to talk about them because it, it's admirable. You talk about your privilege and I find that it's quite a fascinating and very inspiring thing that you do because you're, it's self-reflection, isn't it? When you mm. look back at yourself and to actually be able to then use that as a tool for advocacy to push forward and to speak for others is actually really, really, really special, I think. So I think mm, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then the community as well. I totally agree. Going to conferences, I mean, we all get to do this where you, you like-minded individuals and you can fire off each other. It brings that energy back, doesn't it? And it gets you grounded in order yeah. to go on and carry on and that's do right. what you need to do. I totally understand that. Wonderful, wonderful. Totally. Let's talk about your book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader. It's fab. I've started to read it. Reading the preface alone, I've written down here, is enough reason to buy it. I loved it. <laughs> oh, I love that. I worked really hard on that preface. Those what are the it? hardest parts to write is the beginning of the book. In fact, I left it till the end. I, really? I asked my publisher, like I, I struggled because the, the beginning has to be such a, it's got to be a really specific to tone. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you'll lose people if you don't <laughs> write it well and you don't write it in exactly the right way. Because I know for my audience, right, it's not like you and me. It's people who are maybe skeptical, maybe apathetic, maybe clueless and saying, I'm, I don't know what I don't know and why should I care? Or maybe even people who are like being forced to yes. be better at gotcha. this. And, yeah. And so the preface is like, 
yeah, critical. It's lovely. I loved it. How you talked about the word how, and that's the driver for the book. And then the introduction, which you just t- touched on just now, presenting to 25 white male executives with such feedback as, I don't want to know what about people's personal challenges. People need to stop being so sensitive. Do you know how many times I've heard that? Right. So many times. I I don't care if you're black, white or purple. I hire the best person for the job. Again, how many times do we hear that? I know. Incredible. Because you were presenting feedback to an organization with regards to a survey or something. Yeah. And they had been like totally busted in the public square for like bad behavior on the trading floor. And then they're still in denial. It's funny. You can even show the data and the feedback and they don't care. I mean, they just, they will argue with you because they don't, people don't want to face the truth in themselves as leaders or their responsibility because it's honestly an organization they have actually shaped, right? So they have, in in a way, they've been complicit in this behavior if they haven't done anything about it. If they've been told and they didn't do anything about it, like that's, that's an interesting thing. (laughs) And if they didn't know, then they're in denial because it's a bad reflection on them. Right. And so many people want to believe they're good people. Of course. Like we want to say, well, not on my watch and that can't be true. And you know, I'm a, I have daughters and I get this, you know? And so it's just this whole sort of self-construction that like I am well-intended and I believe I, you know, I, generally believe that like everybody should have equal opportunity, but that they're not admitting that their belief that their workplace is a meritocracy is actually not true. It's never been true because honestly, people have hired their friends. They've hired yes. people from, from the same schools they went to without evaluating the rest of their performance. <laughs> They've like literally built, or this is why we see like one demographic overrepresented in leadership. Yes. And this is why we struggle because then the, then the meritocracy argument is applied then to, to the situation now, which is like, well, don't force me to hire somebody that I don't want to hire. Like, are you telling me I have to hire somebody who's not as good at the job because I'm trying to fulfill a diversity quota? And then you have to sort of go down that spiral, right? Of like sort of saying, well, guess what? It was never a meritocracy. It was never fair, actually. And so could we, could we start there as a baseline? Yeah. It's just really hard because like it's taking apart like everybody's pra- past practices, beliefs that they're a good person, beliefs that they're fair, but they've just never ever looked at this, this through this lens that I'm bringing. And it's a really like startling sort of, I think, I think people have to go through a, a period of shame, honestly, if they have a heart and they have empathy to say- Self-reflection. Yeah, just to say, wow, Jennifer, like you're right. You know, I didn't realize it was so bad. And I didn't realize that I had played this role in enabling it or, you know, not challenging it. Or, you know, you hope you can kind of wake them up to this. But this is the hard work, (laughs) really hard work of um, getting through the denial, getting through the, um, you know, I'm not saying you're a bad person. It's that we, we have not really understood this in, in its truthful form. Yeah. And, um, and let's, let's do something about it. And then they're like, and then the, the next thing you get is, okay, well, okay, so let's require like one woman in every slate of interview candidates and one person. Of, I'm like, by the way, that's not enough. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, good step. But the chances that that one woman on the slate is going to actually get through the interview rounds and get hired is still nil. It's not enough. It's not enough of a change. And you can't just tokenize diversity in your processes. Like you really have to almost positively bias the way you do things in order to correct the vast gap that we have. Like, how are we going to correct that? And, and we don't have until 2050. Like we, 
like the world is changing. It is changed. And yet organizations are completely behind. Like, and so to my call to action is for leaders is like, well, what, what are you going to do to truly correct this and fast? Because the, the more time you take and you dither and you take small actions and you, you make incremental commitments, the more talent you are not going to be able to hire because they're going to look at you and look at the organization and look at the asset and say, I can't thrive here because I don't see anyone that looks like me here. And like I hear on word on the street and I read Glassdoor about the environment, you know, like we have data now, we know, we know. And so I just think the, the building is on fire and so many leaders just are in complete denial. Denial. Yeah. And the world is changing so much and there's a lot of challenges going on as well that companies will unfortunately, they'll become dinosaurs and they will fold. Yeah. Because they're not actually addressing. There are beautiful people out in the world who bring so much talent, so much incredible, smart thinking to companies. And that's being ignored because yeah. people aren't addressing the race imbalance, the gender imbalance yeah. and, you know, LGBT, you know, everything. All of it. A whole lot. All, all of it. All, all of it. it. Anything except for like one or two demographics that have somehow been sort of promoted and pulled up and, you know, uh, supported into executive leadership and like that has that has just been running unchecked for as long as business has existed so this is a lot to undo it's a lot to undo big job for you big job (laughs) i accept (laughs) give it to me give it to me (laughs) i will die trying that is for sure now you've argued in your book that there are benefits to employees bringing their full selves to the workplace Mm. despite what some of your feedback in that meeting (laughs) What do you mean when you say that? What do you mean in terms of bringing your full self to the to company? Yeah, you know, in some companies, some of my friends uh, call it bringing your best self, maybe not your full self. I don't know. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a okay. lot of a lot of like conversation about language because it's language is really important, even one word. Uh, but bringing your full self to work, I mean, as an LGBTQ person, remember that 50% of us, half of us in the workplace today, are still closeted. So, I mean, just to put a stark example of it, like literally making up, like changing pronouns and not putting pictures on the desk and not talking about what you did and who you did, did it with over the weekend, like socially or community or philanthropy or anything like, so just sanitizing your life in order to assimilate to a dominant culture in your workplace. But that can be anything. It can be covering mental health challenges. I mean, it's just, you know, mental health is, is, is rife in organizations and it's, it's a deeply stigmatized thing to talk about. It reminds me a lot of being LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there's mental health challenges in the LGBTQ community, Absolutely. which is, which is what we call intersectionality, which is the sort of existence of multiple stigmatized identities or experiences that are sort of impacting each other and kind of compounding in terms of the impact on the individual who's trying to bring their full self to work. Um, so yeah, so LGBTQ, I think also, look, if you're a woman or a woman of color or both women of color in the organization, you know, you can't hide those diversity demographics. And so they actually, you know, they are impacting you, whether you like it or not. Like some of us can hide some, you know, a disability, et cetera. Others of us, um, you know, you walk in the room and stereotypes are going to happen and assumptions are going to be made about you and your capability and your your professionalism and your credibility based on your gender, based on your ethnicity. It really, it just depends on the audience, right? And so um, bringing your full self to work may mean um, for me as a woman of color, 
for example, like not sort of downplaying my gender and my ethnicity and not ever talking about it and not being seen with other people that look like me and not advocating and challenging jokes, but actually bringing your full self to work may be saying, committing to yourself, like I'm, I'm going to be an advocate for change. Like I'm not just going to not talk about who I am. Yeah. sort of leave it out of the conversation. I'm going to actually raise it or I'm going to activate my allies to help me raise cultural issues that I'm experiencing. Because by the way, speaking of self-care, you don't always have to do all this stuff alone and you shouldn't because you'll burn out. Yeah. So, so thinking about like I'm here as, an, as, a, as a potential ally that I, that I can be activated by someone picking up the phone and saying to me, Jennifer, could you put in a good word? Could you have a conversation with this person? Could you Bring, raise this comment that was made or this, this statement that's always made that makes, makes me not feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. And like, I'm standing by to do that. And I think that that's what allies should be doing. Um, one of my friends calls allies accomplices. Uh, which I love, uh, which is, yeah, it's really, it's, it's a different twist, right? It's like, I'm your, like, I'm, I'm with you, whatever you need. My, my friend Patty Dingle says, it's like, I'm like, I'm in the getaway car, like ready to speed away. Like you come, you jump in and I'm driving. Like, yeah. So, so I do think self-care also means work smarter, not harder. Like don't continue to be like the fly against the screen door, like over and over again, beating your head because that is just going to destroy you. And you're not going to change the environment. Work with your allies who have some kind of power and maybe they, they are a different looking messenger than you. Yeah. And work through people so that you can get the point across, but it doesn't always need to be, you know, you that is constantly um, pushing the boulder because you just, that's not sustainable. Yeah. So work through others, work through influence, marshal your allies. I think there's so many people that are asking me anyway, like, how do I do more? And my answer always is, so who are you doing more with and for and in support of? Like, do you even know how to apply your energy for who, alongside whoever needs it most? And maybe you have excess. Like, maybe you're safe. Maybe you don't, it's not risky for you to challenge something, you know? So to me, that is like underutilized assets that you could be, that somebody else needs. It's literally like just a mismatch of like, you know, energy and those who need it and those who can give it. We just have to match these things. Like we've got to kind of connect the dots and like give some people a break because honestly showing up and bringing your full self to work when you're like a trans woman or you're gender non-binary and you're in a corporate environment is exhausting. It's exhausting. You're constantly educating. You're constantly kind of correcting people. You're constantly trying to teach the organization. You're constantly being asked, oh, tell me about your experience, you know? So when I can and I, Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I gotta, I have to be fluent so that I can help people that look like me understand what the issues are for a variety of communities. And um, my job is to know enough to be helpful. And it's a lot. I mean, trust me, I have to learn about 12 communities of identity on a constant basis. That's Mm -hmm. kind of my own checklist. I need to know. Literally, I'm like, okay, so what are the statistics? How does this community want to be uh, referred to? What is the latest language? What are the statistics about how engaged this community feels at work or not? Why? You know, what are some differential or equitable strategies to include this group? How do they want to be spoken to, spoken about, included, supported? Like, it's not just LGBTQ people. Like, I need, as a white ally, I need to be able to talk about what the experience is a woman of color. As a cis woman, I have to be able to talk about trans and gender non-binary issues. Like, that's my job. So I would just hope 
this book is a call to action for other people that especially um, sit in a relatively comfortable place to say like, there is so much that you're needed and you need to step forward and do this so that we can all rise together. Because if we leave all the work to people who are the most marginalized, changes are going to happen and those it's not healthy or fair. No, I totally agree with you. So I've written down it. How do you go about trying to influence somebody who is either doesn't understand or really just doesn't care about the inclusion side of things and just really ignores it? How do, you ta- yeah. <laughs> How do you yeah. tackle that? It's hard. You know, I always say, I always feel like I have to have a million tools in my arsenal. Some people love data. Some people respect research, right? Some people are transformed by a personal story that they hear, that they have an aha moment from. Uh, some people have something happen in their families, like their kid comes out to them. <laughs> and yeah. all of a sudden, bang, you didn't care about this. And yeah. Now you do. Yeah. Or now you have somebody who wants to be referred to as they, them pronouns on your team because that's happening more and more. And you have no idea what to do about that. And you maybe have some, I don't know, I hope not, but maybe some resistant feelings about it, depending on your personal beliefs. So it's at your doorstep, whether it's in your family, your community, your place of worship, your workplace, your clients. Maybe your clients are pushing you when you bring an all white male team to a sales meeting, maybe you get some feedback from a client that says, you know, we're not even really sure. Like the fact that you, it didn't cross your mind to bring a diverse team to meet with us because we're in like, say you're a consumer products company and like you're very much in this diverse marketplace that is our, is our marketplace today. And maybe you were very tone deaf in terms of who you brought to a meeting. And maybe you hadn't even thought about the fact that you could lose business and clients and relationships because you have no story to tell and you don't care about this and it's not on your radar screen at all. So I think more and more there's pressure coming from so many different places. And so what I try to do is figure out uh, where does this person sit? How much do they know? Is their resistance basically just a lack of knowledge so that if they're shown the information, they, they can actually have an aha moment? Or are they resistant? So that's kind of a different conversation. Yeah. And then, but there's, I honestly think it mostly, it is literally a cluelessness. It is like, I always say, if I stopped like a male business leader on the street and I said, do you think you have a gender issue in your organization? Like, do you think women are paid the same as men? Do you think um, you, what would you guess is your percentages in terms of demographics at all levels of your company? I honestly think people would say like, oh, we do great with women. Yeah. So it's so fun. Of course, of course we wouldn't pay women any differently. Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm a great leader. I would never let that happen on my watch. And then you show yeah. the data and it's like this moment. So, so I just think people don't think there's a problem. And that's, so how do we show, how do we show this? Educate how do we back you. it up? Yeah. yeah. How do we do that? And then they say, oh my goodness, I'm so ashamed. I'm so embarrassed. I didn't know this. How could I have been a part of this? I didn't mean it, right? Intent versus impact. Okay. Okay, great. Like be upset for a minute and then like, let's move to like action. So what are we going to do about it? And then it becomes a question of how much courage do you have to talk about this, to not hide it, to own it, to publicly share a commitment about changing it, actually changing it, (laughs) being consistent in terms of a commitment to change, talking about your journey. Like that's all the good stuff that once that sort of initial like unawareness or resistance is sort of, you have to process through it, then you can talk about the how. 
And that's really where it gets exciting because then you can like build those strategies and, and watch a leader and an organization kind of change and make a commitment. And, and I love that. If we can get to that, then I feel like we can really, we can really do what we're best at, which yes. is like, let's, let's go time. after this. Yeah. yeah. Run with totally. it. Right. This is what's going to happen. <laughs> love it. Love it. Yeah. Now you said, um, I believe you said that everyone has a diversity story mm -hmm. and I believe everyone has a story as well. So I'm totally with you. Oh, Even awesome. a middle-aged white man. <laughs> totally. What do you mean by that for everyone? Oh listening? my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I think, uh, so my field, the DNI field has been very focused on um, underrepresented groups historically. So we've been obsessed with sharing like who's missing from the workforce, right? And let's just pick two groups, like women and people of color for one. Um, and that's has served. We, we've built all this infrastructure around this. We've built employee resource groups, affinity groups. We've we've like made strategies around like changing that. And I think that the unintended consequence has been that many people have not really felt like they've been a focus um, in the work, or that they've known what role they need to play. Mm. Um, and in fact, maybe even been identified as part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. And. Um, Yes. I mean, maybe by doing nothing and not paying attention or knowing this was a problem, you're part of the problem, right? It's the definition of complicity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think silence on something speaks volumes as well. And like, unfortunately sends a message whether you intended it or not. And so uh, I think we haven't, we haven't talked about everyone having a diversity story um, very intentionally. And I think the result then has been that many people don't feel like they're a part of this, that they're just like, oh, well, that's the diversity team's job or the affinity groups will take care of that. Or I will send my people to unconscious bias training and check the box, but that's all the attention I'm going to give it for a calendar year. Literally. Like I never take it on board. I never personalize it. I never think about it as a leadership competency, et cetera. So much of my work has been to talk about the universality of exclusion and the fact that we all have experiences of that. And we all actually cover parts of our stories and our identities at work. So I have executive leaders when I do this session and my keynote, when I ask them to share, they say, oh, okay, I, I think I understand Jennifer, like this is true to me as well. Like I cover in the workplace and I don't bring my spirituality or my religious beliefs. I'm Jewish on a Christian management team, you know, and nobody ever talks about Jewish holidays. And in fact, we sort of work through them and nobody, you know, nobody pauses to be inclusive about different holidays. Um, I don't have a college degree and I never talk about it. And my kids don't even know that I didn't graduate from college. Um, but now I'm like a COO of a fortune 50 company, or I grew up in a alcoholic abusive family and it was, my childhood was incredibly difficult and I wasn't sure if, you know, I'd have enough to eat. And like all these stories. So, and, or disability, how disability affects people's lives, um, how mental health and addiction is impacting. I had a father share about his son who's tried to commit suicide several times, like is very, you know, and I, so anyway, there's just this humanity in a group of people that I think has been disregarded in the strategy. Yeah. And if we can somehow succeed in, in creating this sort of explaining that this is a universal, it's not the same demographics we may be covering in the workplace, but we all know the experience of not bringing our full selves to work in many ways. And by the way, men, men suffer from the man box. So I've had podcast guests on like Mark Green, who wrote the little Me Too book for men, where it talks about the harmfulness of this like hyper-masculinity that dominates the business world. That is not great for all men. I mean, no. I would argue it's not great for all, for any men. 
certainly not for the women that work with those men, but it's not great for the men themselves in terms of this sort of narrow straitjacket about norms and behaviors and what you're allowed to be interested in and whether you're whether you feel like you can take paternity leave. Like so many men don't take paternity leave because there's so much shame around it and no other men are doing it, even though it's offered. Like it's literally like this vast underutilization. It so is crazy. That, yeah. So that tells me like there is just so much hiding and so much like angst and, and effort spent kind of sanitizing ourselves regardless of who we are. So if that's true, then let's build workplaces where we normalize more of who we are, what we truly are, what we're truly going through every day. Let's talk about these things. Let's talk about mental health in the workplace. Let's, let's talk about like, how do we keep an employee base here because we want to retain our talent when there's so much going on for each one of those per- people that, that we aren't comfortable talking about, that we haven't normalized, that leaders aren't speaking about or being honest about. You know, leaders have to go first in terms of declaring like, hey, I'm going to take a risk here. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to share something that was very meaningful to me. I'm going to share a challenge. I'm going to share what's going on in my family right now. My kid just came out to me as transgender. Like I'm learning and I need to be, what I'd like to hear leaders do is be vulnerable and truthful and say, hey, here's, here's where if I relate not bringing my full self to work, like let me go first, even though I'm the all powerful executive that's supposed to have all the answers. Let me be real because that, by the way, is what young people want to see and hear. They don't want to see the sanitized version and they are not going to give you the authority just because of your title and where your office is. It just, it's, it's not true anymore. So how are we going to earn that followership? And that's through authenticity, vulnerability, um, being open to learning, being agile, um, sharing your journey. And I, I, I would just really, really think that would make a huge difference in terms of retention because people then would say, oh, my leaders like are really, really trying. They really, they're not perfect. They don't always get it right. But at the very least, they're doing their work and they've shared about how they're doing their work. That would be transformative. You're, you know, you're so right. And I've been nodding away to everything you've been saying. <laughs> it's so accurate and so, so true. The authenticity side of things. And in fact, actually how men are expected to behave. I've got two sons and uh, yeah, I mean, they're beautiful boys and they've got such Ugh. a wonderful mind and it's open and it's sponge-like and I want to help them maintain that openness and yeah. what is diverse and what it is to be inclusive. Because mm. you're quite right, I, I, probably, I imagine there's a whole wealth of men who feel that they have to conform in a particular Definitely. way in order to get by because this is what you're supposed to do, right. much like women behave or feel like they should in years gone by. So I think it's opening the boundaries up we're all human at the end of the day. Right. We're all, right. you know, we all want to get by. So it's, I, I love what you're doing and how you're talking about Thank it. You. And adjusting it. it's absolutely fabulous. Just on one other, one other question. So for anybody who is trying to make an impact in their workplace that, you know, a manager who's trying to be more, uh, more inclusive and bring diversity, but doesn't feel that you're making the effort, but doesn't feel that they're quite getting it right. Mm. Or they're not succeeding. What advice mm-hmm. would you give them to just what, what steps should they make just to try and bring it in? Yeah. Well, in the book, there's a four-stage model, of, like a journey. So I would say you've got to know where you are in order to make progress. So there's an assessment that goes along with the book that's free. I would really recommend everybody take that. You can find it at inclusiveleadertheBook.com. And um, you'll get a score along like five different criteria and categories. And you can start working from there. 
Um, and there, I would say there's a lot of ideas in the book for concrete, small, big actions, private, public actions, whatever you're ready for. However quickly you feel like you're ready to move, um, you may be really aggressive about it and be like, I am like going to get this. Like I'm going to read everything Jennifer writes and like really like apply myself. And other people are going to take a long time, you know, and that's, that's totally, to me, it's acceptable as long as you're on the journey and you're really making an effort. So I would say um, read, learn. Um, do your homework. Like I said, I'm constantly consuming media about different identities besides my own. I'm trying to understand the lived experience. I'm asking colleagues to share honestly with me, like, what is it? How can I be a better ally? Like, how might I support you? Is there something that I can do to enable your success? Is there an area where you're being thwarted um, or you're feeling like you have a disconnect with being here or on the team. And by the way, you don't need to be a leader to do this. You could be a colleague. You can say like, what could I do? And I, one example is like sharing of pronouns is really powerful. I try to say, hey, I'm Jennifer Brown. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And then I move on to the business of the day. And I just, I'm casual about it. <laughs> I try to do that. I'm still building my own muscle with that as a cis woman, but I I, um, it's important to indicate that because that may open a door and make and normalize it for the team to discuss it. And somebody on the team who's never said anything might, might then feel more safe to say, actually, my pronouns are they, them, you know, would you call me that? Like just little stuff like that. So I think, um, it, it's, there's a ton of ideas like that in the book. And once you start to pay attention, maybe you're on Twitter, Twitter has a great, is a deep resource on diversity and inclusion. I've learned so much from all the different threads and all the articles in the news. I mean, once you start paying attention to this, you, you start to, I think, tune in right. and you start to like crave and read. If you're a man, you should be reading all the articles you can about what the workplace feels like for women, like all of them. And you should be thinking about it and you should be noting the statistics and, and have some research in your back pocket so that you can share whatever you might share with legitimacy. Uh, because look, the business world is still very fact-based, very quantitative, very much like, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, like if McKinsey says it's so, then it is so <laughs> like, you know, yeah, whatever. No, it's, it's really good stuff. I don't, I don't mean to knock it. I actually use McKinsey stuff all the time, but like, but you just have to like be smart about how you, you're going to challenge things. Like if you're coming up against somebody who doesn't believe LGBTQ rights should be celebrated in June and there shouldn't be a pride flag at your headquarters even though the CEO maybe was the one that hoisted it and you know, your colleague doesn't think it's a thing. And by the way, doesn't feel like they could bring their full self to work because the, the flag is flying. How are you going to have that conversation as an ally, you know, and, and, and what will you, how will you argue that? Like, how will you say, well, actually LGBTQ inclusion is important because it's like, it's a, it's an, it, it has everything to do with our ability to attract and retain people from certain communities who could be like our next most brilliant scientist, you know, who could be our next, come up with our next big idea, who reflect, by the way, tons of our, our market, you know, in terms of buying our products and services. So you need to be able to articulate that, that it's not just the right thing to do, but that you can bring that business case because the right thing to do, the moral argument is probably going to be your maybe least powerful argument, sadly even though for people like us and maybe your listeners, it should be enough. It should be enough to say, okay, please have empathy for people who are literally not talking about their life at work. 
Like have some empathy for that because that's exhausting. You know, you try to work with a blindfold on and hands tied behind your back every single day because you're walking through the hallways of your workplace and you're literally like managing the fact that you're the only one that looks like you, that you see on a constant basis or you hear jokes and comments or you're constantly in like work, work environments like sports bars and, you know, other sort of environments where you don't feel like you don't feel comfortable, but nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> And so it's just like the empathy thing, but sadly, the moral argument is not going to necessarily win the day for the majority. So have your, have your arguments ready, be fluent, know the numbers, speak about it in terms of what it does for the business of the company, the organization that you work for. And by the way, there's plentiful data, like just Google it, Google business case for diversity, you know, listen to how different companies in different sectors and different industries talk about that. Like NASA talks about it. They say, oh my goodness, you know, we have like, whatever it is, 15% women engineers and our, or, or astrophysicists in our organization. And then we're sending women on spacewalks oh, and we didn't even nice. measure, we didn't even think to measure flight suits for women. So we had to delay oh, the right. whole, we had to delay the whole mission because it didn't even cross our mind that like we would have to like fit this fit them differently because no woman was at the table to point that out. Or maybe she was, but she was ignored and the perspective was not listened to. Right. So this has like real world consequences. Yeah. Do you know what? You've hit the nail on the head again so many times. It is wonderful listening to you speak, Jennifer, honestly, and I'm sure the listeners will be <laughs> thoroughly enjoying this. And I, you know, I've been guilty of this myself. Well, not guilty, just how I've managed my life in certain parts of it. When I first came out, I was in universities. I was in my twenties, and I was very proud. I was very. Mm -hmm. I had long hair then. Long, long. <laughs> I did, honestly, it was all about the hair. It's, it's I know. The big and, thing. But nobody, yeah, nobody knew, and I quite right. enjoyed actually surprising people. No, I'm gay, yeah. and I enjoyed the education. Yeah, yeah. Move forward five, ten years when I'm in the workplace. I stopped doing that. I didn't talk yeah. about it. Didn't, you know, wow. I had to get my very male dominated environment. I didn't talk about my life, uh, you wow. know, so, and then you get into a rut and then you just kind of, when you listen to the jokes, hmm, yeah, mm. but it's been the last few years, it's on a terrible and it's, it's terrible. not right, but you just tolerate it. You do. So You've hit the nail on the head. It's actually almost a conversation you need to have with somebody by saying, Okay, just think about it from this, uh, this way. And I've never right. thought to have that conversation. Huh. How would you feel if you came to work and you can talk about any of that? Right. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to have this joke about this and you just, you just accept it. Right, a right. Different way to, well, you know, an absolutely fantastic way to approach it, I think. But yeah. just try and be more confident yourself. It's, it's very impartial. It's very kind of logical. And I think that unfortunately, this is so sad, but when we get too kind of worked up and passionate, we get called the squeaky wheel. We get called the angry fill in the blank. Like it's such a strong sort of stereotype that is applied to us when we're passionate um, and when we're tired and understandably sort of impatient. And that comes through. I mean, ask any person of color how they're judged if they are passionate about something and they're excited about something and then it's called aggressive. Yeah. Like literally you should know that these double standards are applied to some of us when we are only being passionate, when we are only being definitive, if we're only sharing a strong opinion like everybody else gets to do. But when we do it, it's called something else. Uh, yeah. So this is the kind of stuff that I wish 
you know, would be allies would know like this is a fact it's been documented it happens it's a double standard that's applied and you've got to be super vigilant about it whenever it's applied to somebody around you when you're in a meeting a meeting after the meeting and somebody <laughs> says well she was coming across really strong and oh she always brings that up i'm so tired of it like what will you say in that moment you know yeah. what will, will you point out like no 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 she had an opinion she was sharing that opinion. And it's very she valid. Gets, <laughs> he, she gets interrupted all the time yeah. and nobody pays any attention. Like have, have each other's backs, but you've got to know though, like when does it happen? And you've got to increase your vigilance around you about like, who is, who is, who is getting judged based on this stuff unfairly? When am I going to step in? How am I going to step in? What am I going to say? Right. And that to me is something we should all be vigilant because you cannot leave it to that person to constantly be defending themselves if they even know that this is being said about them. This is the other problem. You're in a total vacuum. Like people are yeah. gossiping about you not being quote unquote professional or having executive presence. And therefore, you're passed over for something. You're not given the stretch assignment. But nobody ever tells you because everybody's afraid to give you honest feedback because they're afraid. I don't know, you're going to cry. I mean, believe it or not, that is still a belief. Um, or that somebody's going to bring a racial discrimination suit against you if you give feedback. Like, no, <laughs> like be courageous. Yeah. Like don't, this is a thing. And, and like, I just think it's irresponsible for leaders not to understand that these things happen all the time and, and who they happen to and whose job it is to address it. And set the example. Yeah, Absolutely. Sure. Love it. Absolutely love, it. love this conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, everybody listening, I'm going to put all of uh, Jennifer's details in the show notes, including the book. Go out and get it. It's, it's out now, isn't it? Uh, it is. Yeah. It is. It's, um, it's been out for two months. It's How two to Be months. an Inclusive Leader. Uh, the assessment that goes along with it is at inclusiveleadertheBook.com. Please take it. Ten minutes. It's free for, for now. It's free. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're trying to figure out like how we blow it up and, and make it like... Um, I think it's going to be, it's going to be big because it's, it's honestly one of the few things that tries to measure kind of where the learner is and the journey and, and what they can do next. Um, and that's yeah. been, I think that's been one of the missing pieces in making progress. So yes. again, self-reflection. I love it. Now I've just got a couple of very fun questions for you or get to know yes. you questions. Okay. Um, what do you like to do to unwind? Oh my gosh. Hot yoga. <laughs> oh, re oh really? My wife yeah. does hot yoga all the time. She uh, comes in drowned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like a drowned rat, but like really like zend out. Yeah. It's good. It's hard. It's really hard, but it's really, really hard. cleansing. I did. It's, I quite like the Zen ones. Yeah. They, where you can think a bit more. I mean, I don't do a lot of yoga, but it is hard. So it is hard. It's hard to stay in the room. And that's yeah. part of the, I think, part of the um, relief that you feel. <laughs> I laid down on the ground, so I wasn't with you. Yeah. <laughs> I can't move. Oh, my I God. Can't exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Now, well, aside from yourself, if you were a superhero saving the world, other than what you're doing now in your present. Yeah, I know, right? What powers would you have? Oh, my gosh. I, I, like, I would like to, um, I'd love to be able to fly and be in a million places at once and replicate myself and others that are doing this kind of work. I don't know, cloning myself, um, <laughs> cloning, cloning us so that we can be everywhere at once and we can have eyeballs in like all different places and we can um, advocate um, in the moment. I would also love to be able to have people live in each other's shoes. Like that would be transformative for this work. Like 
if we could do that through like virtual reality, I mean, and I think the technology is, is happening now where we literally can put people in that place. And that is, that makes such a strong impression on us. That would be amazing. It changes everything. Yeah. So yeah, something like that. Oh, I like that a lot. What a great <laughs> answer. Now, do you, what, since you were, or used to sing, what's your favorite opera? Oh, oh gosh. I love probably the Mozart operas, like oh, any of that, because they're, they're fun to sing. They were perfect yeah. for my voice. Um, yeah, I would say that uh, that stuff. But honestly, it's funny. I was an opera singer, but I really preferred jazz. <laughs> so oh, really? I almost I almost studied to be a jazz singer. Uh, yeah, and that answer I could I would I could have a long conversation on. That. So <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. I think it was covering in a way to be an opera singer because I was raised in a classical music family, and yet secretly I was constantly listening to jazz and R and B, and I and so. Wow. It just, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I kind of miss my calling in a strange way musically. And um, I will always kind of regret like what could that have looked like? Because that's the kind of music I really oh. love in my next heart. life. Next life. Yeah, next life. We got, next a, life, we got sure. multiple lifetimes. Exactly. <laughs> what is, what achievement are you most proud of? Oh gosh. Um, oh gosh. I think the books. <laughs> I, yeah. I think that, I mean, book writing is so tough. I mean, it, there is nothing that prepares you for it. It is so expensive. It is so time consuming. <laughs> it is so frustrating. It is really hard. It's very personal. Um, it takes everything out of you. Um, and it's so vulnerable to put it in the world and, and be afraid. That fear of it not doing well is so deep. Um, and the fear of exposing yourself and, 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 you know, it's one thing to be able to have an audience to speak to and influence. Cause I think I'm really good at that. I can control that, but putting your stuff out and not knowing who's picking it up and not knowing what they're going to write about you in social media. And it's just really very vulnerable, but I really recommend it. I mean, I, I, at the same time, it is transformative to, yeah. to sort of boil down your message into a package and, and put it out there, regardless of what happens, is such a important part of your journey as, as a human in this world. And so I, I really, really recommend people, and, 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 and not to think your life is insignificant, that you don't need to write about it. Because yeah. I honestly have never met somebody who doesn't have this tremendous thing that I think the world will really benefit from reading. Because if we assume our stories don't matter, and they're not, they didn't happen to us for a, for a reason, um, and that that reason not only transformed us, but it could transform other people's lives. Like that's the important thing. So, so like heal yourself, but then like also know that it's going to show a path for somebody that is literally in the darkness right now. And that, that, it, that should be reason. I think alone, those two things are to me like sort of overwhelmingly convincing to do it, make the time to do it, et cetera. I mean, yeah, I, next generation needs all the help they can get. They need all the role models they can get. And when your story has not been told and it's not, not told, you know, that to me, like, think about that. Think about who might need, whose life you might save. <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah, not joking. So right. No, I totally agree with you. Is that we often don't consider ourselves important enough or relevant yeah. enough or yeah. our experiences, something to discuss, but actually everybody has something. And a lot of people have a collective amount of experiences that are so valuable that will touch somebody else that will help somebody actually move forward and carry That's right. on. That's got, yeah. Right. Writing the book is admirable. I think I've had the good fortune to have several lesbian authors on. And again, they, you know, the stuff that they put into their books and put out, it's a really, you're vulnerable with putting yeah. yourself out there. Yeah. It's a great thing. No, oh, I like yeah. that a lot. Okay. Two yes. more questions. Call to action. 
Yeah, exactly. Two more. These are, I like these two. They're always, I always think they're fun. What's the last photo you took on your phone, on your photo stream? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> my expenses from business travel. That's a super boring answer. Um, literally, <laughs> but let me find the next most interesting one. Um, my cat is sitting oh. on my laundry pile. So nice. I'm, I'm a, uh, my partner is in animal rights. Um, that's oh, her job. And okay. so we have a lot of rescue cats, oh. um, in our tiny New York city apartment. So, um, I have one cat that just loves to be photographed and is always very <laughs> proud of herself by getting in the laundry basket and being cute. So um, oh, that's I, brilliant. <laughs> cats they'll go everywhere won't they small cardboard yes they are, yes, they are. Laundry. and they know when they're being cute and bad at the same time <clears throat> and what is your most used emoji since you have your phone in? oh oh gosh probably the rainbow <laughs> oh lovely yeah yeah, yeah good i like, yeah, I like that. that and for a lot of reasons not just lgbtq stuff but i just like it because it's like it's sort of a like, and also like the hands, like the Ada, oh, yeah. girl. Oh yeah, go, go, go. Yeah, I love like that too. Ada boy, Ada girl, <laughs> out of they, gender identity, neutral. Absolutely. But it's sort of like, keep going, keep You've doing your it. work. You're doing great. I'm supporting Thanks. you, et cetera. Love this. Absolutely loved it. <laughs> Just finally to close off, since this is a Caesar Day theme and you demonstrate... Such a vast amount of season the day opportunities, season moving Thank forward. You. You're a confident lady, the background and whatnot, which you openly admit, you know, privileged stance, but you're still making those moves and you're advocating for others, which is amazing. For all of the listeners, what advice would you give them if they wanted to try something new or perhaps they're more shy, they may be an introvert and they want to move forward in their life, put themselves out there, be it in the workplace or do something new. What kind of advice would you give to somebody to seize the day in whatever guise that may be? Mm. Well, let's stay on the theme of sharing your story. I mean, I, I would love to see more of us like uncover whatever we might be keeping like very, very deep about ourselves it, with the intent to change things around us, but then also to leave that legacy of change so that others can have an easier road. So I think that twofer kind of lens of, of both healing ourselves through our sharing of stories, through that confidence of my story matters. And, and by the way, it's important to believe that it's important to the whatever organizational context you're in, um, because we need to bring these, this change. I mean, I, I don't know, we can't really wait <laughs> to have the change performed by someone else. I mean, we are the change makers. So, you know, I, I think our pride, our embracing of ourselves, our commitment to our own authenticity, our commitment to our needs, our, um, our honoring of that is what's going to change the world around us. So, you know, I think that, you know, the less we adjust ourselves to make others more comfortable in whatever group we're in, um, that actually can change hearts and minds, that authenticity. People get inspired by that. They really do. And like we've talked about today, the world needs that because the world doesn't know what it doesn't know. So and someone bring that truth. Yeah. yeah. Someone inside might have a little bit of a truth there that they're not even aware of. And right. Oh. Yes. And it may open that up. In them. Yeah. Yeah. So you can never predict the domino effect that you can have. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful joy to discover the impact you've had on people that you didn't even know. Um, and, and you could never have predicted. So I do think in my experience, people are very open right now. They're like in the world right now, in the political environment, in the company environment, a lot of people are like, okay, um, now I know what I don't know. Like, and can I, like, maybe I could do, do more, but what is that more? Like, what is the how? 
Um, and I think there's an openness to that that I have honestly never seen in all the years I've been doing this. It has really shifted in the last year or two. People are like, you know, I'm not doing enough. Um, what is this diversity thing? How can I be an inclusive leader? And that was why I wanted to write the book because I just wanted to capitalize on this, on this openness. The door is open and people are open-minded and hearted. They just don't know what to do and how to support. So if we did nothing else but to say to ourselves, like, how can I ask somebody to support? How can I, you know, enlist this? How can I surround myself with, you know, people who have my back? Um, how can I tell my story so that it may shift something in somebody else? How can I not, like, how can I not have my confidence diminished because I feel, you know, ashamed or I'm hiding something that's my truth? Because by the way, that damages us. Most of all, it damages us to tell our subliminal selves, like, this is something that I am either ashamed of, or it's something that I have to kind of spend energy modifying, downplaying, minimizing, you know, yeah. that hurts my productivity. It hurts my professionalism. It hurts my power, honestly. And I mean, that's, that's diminishing us at the end of the day. So don't give into that. Remember you're a leader. Remember you're leading with your story. Remember you have the ability to transform people and teams and organizations around you. And remember that the world really needs you right now because we don't know what we don't know and you need to teach us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. What a way to end it. This has been truly yes. fantastic. Thank you for sharing your morning with me. This has been, and sharing oh, all this Thank you, great. Natalie. Really this has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. Take care, look after yourself, keep well. You have been listening to Seize the Day with Natalie Millersnell. All contact information can be found in the show notes, together with any links to websites I may have referred to in the show. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please pop over to seizethedashday.com where you'll find my other shows. And come and talk to me at Twitter or email me on nataliemillersnell at gmail.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>